<clears throat> Father, thanks for your goodness to us. We pray as we open up your word, your spirit would speak to our hearts, to our minds, to our actions. God, would we see you in this story this morning, and would you change us? We ask that you would do it, and we pray it in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> good morning. Good to see you guys. Thanks, you guys, for coming out to the Spring Fling. Uh, those of you that were there, it was a ton of fun. We had a great time. Uh, those of you that ate the food, Poly Praise is a new organization that meets on this campus, and they're kind of the food pantry. Uh, they're Polynesians, and they had a whole pig that they were kind of roasting, and it smelled unbelievable. It might have traumatized some of the kids because they kept checking on the pig, and then all of a sudden the pig didn't have a head, and we were eating it. Um, but it was a great time. Uh, we had a three-on-three basketball tournament. I think the highlight for me was our second game. I dribbled, and I went to make a no-look pass to my teammate, and Jordan Beldman was on the other team, and defensively, she came in between, and I just hit her head with the ball, just the back of her head, and they're like, what, what's, who's this pastor just throwing balls at kids' heads? It was, I was like, oh, sorry, Jordan. I didn't mean to hit you in the back of the head. Uh, we had a great time. So, Thanks for coming out. Uh, open your Bible to Esther 5. It's not already there. We are in an uh, eight-week series on the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Let me catch you up to where we are in the story because the context will matter for what we're going to talk about in the 14 verses this morning in chapter 5. We saw in chapter 1, we get introduced to this king, King Xerxes. He's the king of Persia. God's people have been taken over by Babylon and then eventually by Persia. But the Persians say, hey, God's people, you can go back to Jerusalem if you want. Rebuild the temple if you want. Go ahead. We're not even mad about that. And so most of the people go back to Jerusalem, God's people, the Jewish people, but a lot of them actually stay in Persia. And that's the story about this group. Well, King Xerxes, we find out some of his character in the first chapter. He is power hungry. He's constantly drunk in the text, and he seems really insecure. Even so much in this first chapter, He's kind of having these feasts and festivals to kind of showcase his power and recruit to this army because he wants to take over more territory and he wants his next, his next plan is to take over the Greeks. And so he has this big party, culminates in this last week of just kind of crazy, look at all how rich I am, this kind of flex. And then he says, oh, you want to see how amazing I am? Come look at my queen, Queen Vashti. Bring her in, everybody. And it gets word back to the queen and she denies him and does not show up. We don't know why. The text doesn't tell us her motivation, but it makes the king super mad. And he kind of doubles down on his insecurity, and he bans Vashti. Most commentators think she probably dies in the midst of that decision not to show up in front of the king. And then his boys, his advisories are like, oh, we need to double down on this. And so they make an edict that says every woman needs to basically obey everything that her husband says in the text. Uh, that's how we end chapter 1. There's four years, about four years between chapter one and chapter two in the story. And in the midst of that, Xerxes does take his army and he does fight the Greeks and he loses a battle statistically he should not lose. He comes back and he's kind of licking his wounds. He's more insecure in the midst of it. And his advisors again go, we know how to make you happy. Let's get you a new queen. And so they have this like demented version of The Bachelor where they bring in all these women and Esther, that's how we get introduced to Esther in the story in chapter two. She's one of those women and her story is already tragic. She's an orphan. Her cousin Mordecai kind of takes her in and raises her. 
And then she gets kind of put into this pageant and she ends up winning because she's beautiful and she pleases the king. And in the midst of it, Mordecai, her cousin's like, don't tell the king you're Jewish. Kind of hide your Jewish identity. Again, we don't know why. The text doesn't tell us the motivation. But she hides her Jewish identity. She becomes queen. Then at the end of chapter 2, what happens is uh, there's these two guys talking and Mordecai, her cousin, happens to be at the king's gate. And he happens to hear these two uh, guys uh, wanting to assassinate the king. And so he goes and he tells Esther, hey, these guys are going to try and kill you. And they investigate it and it was actually true. And uh, Esther tells the king and the king actually, the text says, gives credit to Mordecai. So we would assume he's going to get promoted. But the next thing we see in the story, in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, we get introduced to Haman. And Haman gets promoted. And Haman is just a bad dude. He's the villain of the story the whole way through. I mean, he's narcissistic, he's insecure, he's power hungry, all the things. And so we see that he gets promoted. And one of the things he wants to do is everybody needs to bow to me and respect me. So the king makes this decree. But Mordecai, when he sees him, he doesn't bow to Haman. And that makes Haman all kinds of angry. He's, how could he disrespect me? Not only that, but there's family beef between the two. We see that um, Haman is in uh, the line of the Amalekites, specifically Agag. And if you know the story, uh, the Amalekites and the Jews were not friends. They hated each other because the Amalekites attacked the Jewish people as they come out of slavery in Egypt. They're the first ones that kind of ransack them and attack them. And God's going, these people are not good. You need to wipe them out. And King Saul doesn't do it, if you know that story. And this is the line. And so there's constant fighting. And Haman, it feels disrespected. And he's so frustrated. He doesn't want to just kill Mordecai. He wants to kill all the Jewish people. So he goes to the king and he kind of gives him this kind of manipulates him and kind of says, hey, these people, man, they're not good. We need to wipe them out. And the king, again, is just this puppet and goes, okay, do whatever you want. And so Haman rolls the dice. He casts the die. And, and I need to make a correction. Some of you guys know this. If you, uh, I, I communicated this to the members, but two weeks ago when I was preaching Esther 3, I said, hey, uh, when the die gets cast, the, the, uh, God is sovereign over that. When that happens, actually, it's the date of Passover for, for all the Jews to be killed. I, that's not true, which is what I said. Somebody came up to me after second service and goes, I don't know if that's date, that, date is, that date is right. And so I said, let me look at that. I appreciate your feedback. I went back and I looked and I was transposing verse 12 and verse 13. So the eve of Passover is when Haman comes to the Jews and communicates, hey, you're all going to die. But it actually doesn't happen for another 11 months. And so I just want to make sure that's clear because... I hate to say the wrong things, which happens sometimes. So I'm, I'm thankful that I got the correction, and hopefully that makes sense to you. That again, uh, when, when Haman cast the lot, uh, the date wasn't Passover, but when he communicates it to the Jews initially, it is Passover. So God's people are celebrating their, 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 their rescue from Egypt, and then they hear this news, oh, you're going to all die in about 11 months. So that's what's going on in the story. It's not good. And then we saw in chapter 4 last week where Mordecai is mourning this news. And Esther, there's this back and forth with Mordecai and Esther. And basically Mordecai says, hey, listen, you need to go and tell the king that you're Jewish. Before he goes, hide it. Now he's saying, no, you need to tell him because our people are going to die and you're going to die. And she's like, listen, the king hasn't called me for 30 days, which means if I don't go uh, in front of the king without him requesting, I could die. Look at what happened to Vashti. 
Like that could happen to me. It's a very real thing. And so she's battling with this thing of going like, if I present myself to the king and he doesn't accept me, he will kill me. And that's where kind of the famous line where Mordecai goes, like, maybe you're in this position for such a time as this, to save your people, to sacrifice yourself potentially for the good of your people. And then she responds, which most of us know, if anything, in Esther chapter 4. And she goes, well, if I perish, I perish. She makes the decision to say, I'm going to use my privilege for the good of my people, even if it costs my life. And with great courage, she moves forward what we see in uh, chapter 5. So the suspense is building. As a reader, you go like, what's, what's going to happen? Is she actually going to go in front of the king? And if she does go in front of the king, will he accept her or is she going to die? Let's pick up the story in verse 1. We're going to read all of the 14 verses in chapter 5, and then we will talk about it. So Esther chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Again, on the third day, oh, I forgot to say this real quick because this gives context. Uh, at the end of chapter 4, which we read last week, Esther says, okay, I, I'm going to go in front of the king fast for, 30, or fast for three days. Tell the people to fast. I'm going to fast. You fast for uh, three days, and then I'll go before the king. Verse 1, chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put her royal robes on and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When Queen Esther, standing in the court, she, uh, he was pleased with her and held out to her uh, the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king said, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I've prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. Verse 6, as they were dining, or as they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition to fill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet, and I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Verse 9, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose or showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Jerish, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all other nobles and officials. That's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to the, accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she invited me along with the king tomorrow. But this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all her friend, his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching up to uh, the height of 50 cubits, that's about 75 feet, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go to the king, to the banquet, and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. End of chapter 5. 75 feet, it's about as 
big as those palm trees out there. It's massive. Some commentators think maybe this is hyperbole, but the whole point is he, was, he wanted to execute Mordecai. He didn't want to wait till the edict. He wanted to kill him right away because of his interaction with him. And again, Esther, if, you, if, we, if we finish the story here in chapter five, you just go, well, this is not good. And I don't know if you've experienced this in your life where you go like, okay, it's up and down because at the beginning of the chapter, you go, oh man, this is tension. She's gonna go in front of the king and what if the king says, no, I don't want you coming here. You need to leave like Vashti and she will probably lose her life. But in the midst of it, we see at the beginning of the text, actually the king welcomes her in and says, up to half of the kingdom you could have. What is your request? And so we go, oh, okay, it was bad, but now the story's good. There's hope. But in the midst of it, she says, here's what I want to do. I want to bring Haman. I want to bring you, king, and I want to have this dinner. I want to have this banquet. And then so he says, yep, let's do it. Let's bring Haman. They have the dinner. They have the banquet. And we think, okay, this is the moment. This is going to happen. It's, it's, it's good. He welcomes her in. And then all of a sudden, what's your request, O king? And then she says, well, let's come back tomorrow night. And so you don't know. It's like, is she chickening out? Is she, is she, does she know this needs to take another night? Does she feel like from the Lord, don't ask right now? The text does not tell us. We don't know. But because of that, we see this interaction where Haman goes out, and now all of a sudden he sees Mordecai, and he's like, I'm not going to wait to kill this dude. I want to kill him this week. And so we go from like some hope of like the king welcomes her in, what's your request? And then she punts and it feels like, oh no, this is bad. Like Haman, or like Mordecai is gonna die probably this week. Why? Because Esther didn't have the courage to ask right away. Feels like she had her moment, she had her shot and she didn't take it. And now all of a sudden this bad stuff is going to happen. And I think what we get to see in this text as we reflect on it this morning is, man, doesn't that happen with life sometimes? <laughs> maybe you're looking to date somebody, and maybe you're on the app and like you're feeling pretty hopeless, and then all of a sudden somebody responds to you, and you, maybe you feel hope like Queen Esther all of a sudden, but then maybe you push to the next day and you just go, oh, I don't know if this is going to work, and then all of a sudden it goes away and you just go, well, did I lose my shot? Like I didn't take advantage of my opportunity when I had it and now I'm single again, right? This kind of stuff happens all the time to us. Do we believe and do we trust in God's timing in our story just like we see in the story here or do we feel like, no, we need to make it happen on our own? Because again, what we see as we kind of uh, not try to resolve the characters but reflect on the characters is that we look at Esther's behavior and Haman's behavior, we see Esther, she doesn't seem to be rushed in her timing, whether it's because she's scared, whether she's trusting the Lord, we don't know, but she doesn't seem to be rushed. She seems to be patient in her timing. Let's come back tomorrow. Let's have this conversation tomorrow. And we will have it tomorrow. That's what she says in the text. But what do we see about Haman's timing? Like he feels insecure, like he swings from really happy to really angry in one verse, verse nine, and he's trying to control, he's trying to grab, he's trying to change things on his own. He feels angry and agitated in the text because he's trusting in his own timing, he's not trusting in the Lord's timing. And again, when we look at the story, and, and as we've said, like God's name's not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther at all, even, even when we look at this, this graphic, and normally it doesn't say Esther underneath it, there's, there's a crown and then nobody underneath it. 
That's intentional to say God is over everything, even when we don't see his name mentioned specifically in the text. Because if we look at the story, we go, man, Esther blew her shot. She blew her opportunity. And this looks dark. This looks like, man, there's not going to be any hope. Mordecai's going to die. Esther's probably going to die. It looks really tragic in the moment. And you just go, where is God? He's not even present here. What does that look like for you in your darkest moment when God seems to be absent? When it seems that you've missed your window of opportunity and you go, ah, I should have done this. When things look hopeless, is God there? Is he still in control? Is he still sovereign? Can you still trust him? Esther seems to do that in her timing. Again, we don't know her motivation. Haman does not. Let's look at this interaction with Haman as we look back at the text starting uh, in verse 9 there. Again, um, Haman seems to swing his emotions really fast in verse 9. He's happy, he's joyful one second, and then he sees Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow to him, doesn't respect him, and then, oh, he's angry, he's livid. That has ever happened to you. When, man, you're on this high, maybe you get a review at work and everybody, like, maybe you get 20 people reviewing your work and 19 are just like, man, that was amazing, that was so great, that was so great, and then you have one bad review. What do you focus on? the one bad review. And you go, ah. And maybe it makes you angry. Maybe it makes you frustrated. This is what happens as Haman, again, is just kind of so insecure. Even at this one moment would take him totally off the rails. Verse 10 is interesting to me there. Verse 10 says, even in the midst of like, he's, he's really mad and he wants to kill Mordecai, the text says, nevertheless, he restrains himself and he goes home. This feels like the only positive mention that Haman has in the whole book. Because <laughs> he could have killed Mordecai right there, probably, but he restrains himself. It just feels like God's sovereignty going like, okay, even in the midst of your enemies wanting to kill you, God is still over them. Because he doesn't kill Mordecai. He goes home. What does he do when he goes home? He goes home and he basically tells everybody how great he is. Right? That sounds like a party you want to be at. You just go to somebody's house and they just tell you how great they are. And look, at, look, oh man, the king loves me and this is great. I'm the only one that gets to go to this thing. Look at how many sons I have. This is so amazing. The funny thing about what Haman is doing is he's doing this like strange version of triangulation. If you know anything about that. What triangulation is, is this idea of, okay, he goes home and like, man, he's feeling really good, but he's got one guy, this Mordecai that disrespects him. And so instead of going directly to God, instead of going directly to Mordecai, what does he do? He goes to his wife and his friends and he talks about how great he is and how everybody loves him, but there's this one guy. And it's really easy for us to judge Haman really quickly because the stakes are high and he's evil, but then we go, ah, oh, do I do that? Do you do that? Again, maybe you're in a work situation and you're on a team and you do really well and you feel really good about what you brought to the table and most of your team and your boss is even going, man, that's good, that's good, you did great, you knocked it out of the park. But then you have one coworker that comes alongside you and goes, actually, I really don't like how you did that. And you don't really like that coworker anyway. They're kind of a problem, they're kind of annoying. And then what do you do in that moment? Do you pray to God and you ask, God, help my heart? Do you go to that person that had a critique on you and go, Help me understand, like maybe you're right. Or 
Do you go to your other coworkers that you know will agree with you and you go, man, this project was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, that project was amazing. Did you hear Bob? Bob actually came to me on the side and he said, I didn't like what you did. What? Bob said he didn't like what you did? Bob's crazy. This is crazy. And so instead of you having this one-on-one relationship with Bob, you triangulate and you get other people on your side to feel better about yourself against Bob. And don't we do this all the time? It could be in a work situation. Maybe it's with your roommates. Maybe you're living with your roommates and you have one roommate, man, you just really struggle with. She just doesn't do the dishes. She's just, ah, you, you just go, ah. And instead of talking directly to her, instead of talking directly to Jesus, you go to your other roommates and you go, can you believe her? Like, man, I've been doing, I've been cleaning the dishes. You have been cleaning the dishes. Good job. I, and, she, and she hasn't done it at all. And then you're getting people on your side to go against that one person instead of talking to them directly. Don't we do this on social media? We get in this echo chamber. I mean, you guys know how social media works, right? The, the, the way that it's set up. We, we kind of get in the same idea with these same people, whether it's political or these other things, and we're just in this kind of cul-de-sac, this echo chamber of same people agreeing with everything we do, and then you hear this one friend that disagrees with you, and you just try to get everybody on your side to go after that one friend. This is what Haman's doing, and in the midst of it, he, what he's doing is he's really trying to grab for power and control. That's what triangulation is. Instead of talking to that person directly, instead of talking to God directly, you're trying to get people on your side because you want power, you want control over that situation. And when you do that, you become angry, you become agitated, you become insecure. This is exactly what Haman is doing. And again, triangulation is this kind of pursuit of power and control that will lead to this this thing. And the more you pursue this power and control, the more it will slip through your fingers, causing you to pursue power and control more, and it's a vicious cycle eroding you as a human. That's not good. The pursuit of power produces anger and apprehension, but surrender to power, God's power through prayer, produces peace and patience and a non-anxious presence. Esther surrendered to courage to, to, to go in front of the king, even though it might cost her her life. Her surrender to courage is just a glimpse of the ultimate surrender we get in the person of Jesus. Think about Jesus. Does he triangulate? As many people come at him with anger and things, does he go to his disciples and go, you know what, these Pharisees, man, they're just the worst. We need to go after them. No, he goes directly to the Pharisees to confront them. And Jesus leads with this kind of non-anxious presence everywhere he goes, even in the midst of the darkest circumstances, even in the midst of people wanting to kill him. He doesn't act like Haman at all. There's something else here in the text in chapter 5 that the original readers, they would have really picked up on that we often, we kind of just read over. And a lot of it has to just do with our context. Right, if I tell a story to you, and in the midst of the story, I say uh, the phrase 9-11, and then I talk about that. You, you're, if I say that phrase, you're going to stop for a second. You're going to pay attention more to what I'm saying because of what happened on September 11, 2001 for most of us. We knew where we were. We knew what happened. We saw that tragedy. But if I had said the, the phrase 9-11 50 years ago, you would have been like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. There's a phrase that happens here in the text that the original readers would have picked up on right away in the midst of the story going like it's these highs and these lows and man, it looks really low. It looks like I don't know what's going to happen to Esther. I don't know what's going to happen to God's people. But look at 
verse 1 again. It's this phrase on the third day. On the third day, the readers, the original readers, would have stopped in their tracks and gone, hold on a second. This isn't just giving me timing for what's happening with Esther and that they fasted for three days and now she's gone. On the third day, because in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people would have known, on the third day, things get rescued. With this phrase, with these people, they would have realized on the third day the author is doing something intentional. Even though God's name is not mentioned at all, this is the nod to go like, do you know what happens when tragedy looks like it's going to get worse than something changes on the third day? Let me show you how that works. Genesis chapter 22, verse 4, Abraham gets called to sacrifice his son. God's testing him. Do you really love me? You need to sacrifice your son. If you know the story, God intervenes at the last minute. But what happens in verse uh, four of chapter 22, um, this is the phrase that shows up. Abraham, he's hiking. He says, on the third day, he finds the place he's gonna sacrifice Isaac. The Lord, when he meets his people, after he rescues them out of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, verse 11, he's going to come down, he's going to be in their presence, it's going to be holy, he's going to give them the Ten Commandments, and when that, does that happen on the third day? God comes down to meet his people. Jonah, the prophet, is called to go and preach to the Ninevites. He doesn't want to go in his disobedience, but in God's sovereignty, he gets thrown over this ship, he gets swallowed by this big fish, and then he gets spit out on the third day. The third day is like this hyperlink that should make us pay attention and made the Hebrew people pay attention to, man, oh, wait, wait a second, something's about to happen here. On the third day is listed over 25 times in the Old Testament, First time it shows up and is actually in Genesis chapter 1, first chapter of the Bible, verse 13. When God's creating everything, what does he create on the third day? He creates the earth. Then he creates this, verse 11 of Genesis chapter 1 says, Let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed and fruit and bearing fruits. So God creates plants to sustain, sustain human life on the third day. So things rose from the ground on the third day that give life. That's this third day that they would have gone, whoa, 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 a second. This looks tragic. Esther misses her window of opportunity. It looks like Mordecai is going to die. But hold on, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Do you know that stuff happens on the third day? And for us, we get into the cycle of our life where we feel like, man, I'm looking at my circumstances. I'm looking at, like, God, why won't you change this? It seems like you're absent. This feels dark. I don't know what to do. And we need to be reminded what happens on the third day. To trust that God is in control, that we don't have to be like Haman. We don't have to grab after our circumstances. We don't have to manipulate and control. We don't have to do those things, but because we trust a God that operates on the third day when it looks like everything is lost, something changes on the third day. And just like Jesus in his darkest moment, he's praying in the garden. He's about to be betrayed, arrested by his closest follower. Judas comes in and betrays him, sells him out. He knows. He's praying in the garden. He knows the pain that's about to come his way, both physically, both emotionally, and he doesn't grab for control like Haman. What does he do? He says, no, there's any way you can take this from me. He's honest with his father, but he says, not my will, but yours. He surrenders his power and control 
to the power and control of the Father. Jesus, in John chapter 2, he and his disciples, they show up at this wedding. When do they show up? At the beginning of the wedding? Actually, no, they show up on what? The third day. And that's in the text. And in the text, on the third day, this is the first public miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. Man, what do you need to be reminded in your current situation that there's a third day coming? That you go, you look at your situation, you look at your circumstances, and you just go like, man, this, is, this looks dark. This looks hopeless. I'm trying to trust God. I feel pain. I feel the, the circumstances. God, are you absent? Where are you? I've been praying to you. I don't feel like I have an answer. And you go, hold on a second. I actually trust the God of the third day that he's going to rescue, that he's going to redeem. Maybe it's not even in this life, but in the next. Because what we see, and you know the story that we're about to celebrate in just a little under a month, that we'll look at Good Friday, and it looked hopeless. The Messiah's dead. This guy we've been following, we thought Jesus was him. We thought he was going to rescue us, and now he is dead. He's in the grave, and he's gone. And it feels hopeless. But God had a plan. Three days later, Jesus comes out of the grave. And man, we just need to be reminded of this. Instead of trying to grab for control, I mean, even as a parent, how does this feel when you're trying to parent your kids and they're doing things and you just go, I, I don't know what to do. It feels like, God, I've been praying. It feels like you're absent, but God is in control. Keep trusting him. Don't try and manipulate. Don't try and grab for control. It will slip out of your fingers. You will become angry. You will become insecure, just like him. And as hard as it is to go, okay, God, I want to surrender to you. I don't want to act like this way. I want to trust in your timing and not in my own. It's a hard thing to do. But this is what the text is calling us to do. And Jesus makes the ultimate surrender that produces the ultimate peace and the ultimate patience as he heads to the cross. And do you need to find peace? Do you need patience in your life? Do you need peace in your life? So we need to turn again and surrender again to that true source of peace and patience. Stop grabbing for control and start releasing control to the Father. What do we do? How do we do that? What does that look like practically? That's why we respond the way we respond every single week. To turn back again in our time of response, we're going to sing what we believe to be true. Even if we don't feel it, even if we don't see it by faith, we're going, I trust the God that does stuff on the third day. And even in the midst of my circumstances, I'm going to trust him to do what only he can do. And so we sing about those things. We believe in those things by faith. Not only do we sing, but we pray. We ask the Spirit to change us. So we want part of our response time for you to be invited into prayer with the Lord. Whether it's you in your seats while you're singing, we have a prayer space off to, the, to, to my right, your left, that you can go in there, you can write on a card, man, maybe you're triangling, maybe you're grabbing for control in a situation, maybe you're frustrated because you feel like you've been praying about this and nothing seems to be changing. Keep praying. Keep trusting God. He's in control. He knows what's best and he loves you. He loves you so much. And you go, I don't know if he loves me because this stuff's happening. He's doing those things for a reason. Keep trusting his timing instead of trying to reach out and grab for control on your own. 
And so during this time, we just invite you to pray. Maybe you need to write somebody on that card that you've been kind of using and manipulating to get your way. Maybe it's a situation you're in and you're feeling frustrated like God's not around. Write that down. Put it in the prayer space. Spend some time with God. Continue to give away that control to him. It's the best place you can put your anxiety is in God's hands. So we're going to sing, we're going to pray, and then we're going to come down to the table. We're going to remind ourselves, we're going to reset our hearts to go, you know what, I'm tired of grabbing for control. I'm tired of that. It doesn't work. Or if it does work, if it gets results, it makes me more anxious. It makes the people I'm leading more anxious. I get aggravated. I I get angry quicker. Like, that's not the way you're called to live. And so you come down and you take a piece of bread, which represents this body of Christ given to you. You dip it in this juice, which represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And you go, I trust the third day God. That changes things tired of relying on myself, tired of grasping for control on my own. And again, it doesn't mean you sit there and mean you go, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to surrender to you. And then I'm going to ask you moment by spirit, what's my next step? What's my next step? Because releasing control doesn't mean you don't do anything at all. I don't want you to hear that. But it means you're trusting in God instead of trusting in yourself. You're doing your best to listen to his spirit. You're doing your best to listen to God's people. You're not trying to manipulate. You're not trying to control. You're going like, okay, God, this doesn't make sense to me, but I trust you. And that's why we come down to the table to reset our hearts every single week to go, God, I don't want to trust in my own timing. I want to trust in yours. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, we're going to walk down to the table. We're going to surrender our agenda for power. We're going to surrender our desire for control as we take a piece of bread and we go, no, my life is given to you. Help me live that out every single day. Let's pray and ask God to meet us in that time. God, as we respond to the truth of your word, would you help us? We so desperately seek our own control, our own power. We can do just like what we see Haman doing. We can manipulate. We can get other people on our side instead of asking you directly and talking to people directly that we have issue with. God, we need our hearts to be reset to the goodness and the truth of who you are. That by trusting in you, by trusting in your timing, that you will give us what we need and that we will be changed, Jesus, to look more like you. Thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus, that you didn't grab for control, you didn't grab for power, but you released it back into your Father's hands. And because of that, we can have a relationship with you. So meet us in our time, Jesus, in the morning, whatever is going on in our hearts, whatever is going on in our minds, Would you help us let go of control, let go of our own timetables and trust in you, even in our darkest and most confusing moments? We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.